Well, happy Sabbath, everyone. I'm so glad to see you here today and also to our friends who are watching live and those who are uh, somewhere else listening to the message today. We are so glad that you opened this time in your busy schedules to allow the Word of God to come to you. And uh, we're in the middle of this series that we've titled, Loved Even in Spite of Me. And as we've been learning, the messages that we are extracting the lessons are from the letters that John wrote to the churches in Asia Minor during the first century. However, every church has a particular message that was to their time, but also a message that applies to each one of us today. I read a story a while ago about this family who decided to move to the country. They were tired of the city life and they decided to buy a ranch and some cattle in the Midwest. So they moved away and they bought a ranch. And they were welcomed by the family and as they were having the first meal at the table, some of the guests asked the question. So how did you come up with the idea to name the ranch? The father said, well, I wanted to name the ranch the Fly W. But Susie, my wife, wanted to name the ranch Susie Q. Stephen, our son, wanted to name it Bar J. And little John wanted to name it the lazy Y. So we compromised. And we decided to name it Fly W, Susie Q, Bar J, Lazy Y. That's interesting. And another question followed. Hey, what happened to all the cattle? Where are they? And the man said, well, they did not survive the branding. Today, and compromising has two definitions. The first one is a definition that the kids learn during the kid's story. And that's a great thing. We have to compromise sometimes to agree with somebody else and to, to do good for everyone. But for the adults I'm going to talk about, and also for the kids, but for the adults mainly, I'm going to talk about the bad compromising. The compromising that the church on Pergamum, or Pergamos, depends on the version of the Bible that you're reading from, experienced. And I'm going to ask you to open your, your notes, go to the bulletin, we're there, or follow, follow along in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. A lot of the language that we read from these letters is repeated, repeated from the previous letters. So we know who the angel is. We know who the star is. We know what the church represents. And the angel of the church in Pergamos writes, to the, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos writes, this thing says he, who is he? Do you see that isn't a capital H? He, that's Jesus. So these things he says who has a sharp two-edged sword to Pergamos. 
The first letter that we studied was a letter to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus, as we learned, was such an important city, such a cultural and, 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 and commercial city that we could equate it to New York City today. Last week we studied about Smyrna, and Smyrna was such a beautiful city that if you ever had a chance to be in Rome, Smyrna was kind of like Rome. But Pergamum was more like Las Vegas. In fact, they could have coined the phrase, whatever happens in Pergamum stays in Pergamum. It was the capital of Asia Minor for many, many, many years, so they had this sense of pride. In the prophetic perspective, this church cover, covers the years from the year 313 to the year 538. This is an era of compromise. This is an era where the Christian church began to put the, the teachings and the experience and the testimony of Jesus aside and, and, and being accepted in society and culture became more relevant. Government and church during this time was basically the same thing. You could not be a king unless the church accepted you. And thirdly, it was an era of popularity. So you try to do the things that made you popular. If you did something that was not going to make you popular, popular, you would not do them. And this affected the Christian church. The, the, the situation for the church of Pergamum was rather interesting because they were a center of political influence. You know how they say that as, as he goes in California, goes in the rest? Well, as he went in Pergamum, went in the rest of Asia Minor. In art, they had an auditorium that was, they had an auditorium that was with capacity for It also had the second largest library, being the first one, the one in Alexandria. Pergamon was known for mastering the skill of publishing books. They invented the parchment. Parchment is a technique of writing ink with ink on skin of animals. In fact, in Latin, the word for, for parchment is Pergamum. In Spanish, we have the word pergamino. It comes from Pergamum. It was a center also of religious idolatry. It was so idolatrous that they built a temple for Caesar, just like the other churches. But also on the top of the mound, there was a temple that was built for the god Zeus. And constantly, there were sacrifices and incense being burned on this mound. And there was a permanent cloud of black smoke covering the city. The altar of Zeus was adorned by a, a sculpture that was called the, the Battle of the Giants. In fact, in Germany today, they have a replica of that temple and the, and the uh, sculpture. They also had a center of healing. The god Asclepius was represented in this place and he became the patron of health. So people came to this place, they would make a line all day. Because at the time of, at the, time of the sun, uh, sunset, people will be chosen to come inside to be healed. 
And the process was that these people who were chosen at sunset, they would be brought into, into this place and they would be laid on the ground. And in the middle of the night when it was dark, the healers, the doctors, would allow serpents to go and roam around where the people were sleeping. It was the belief that if you felt the touch of the snake, you were chosen by the God Asclepius to be healed. Aren't you glad that hospitals don't do that anymore? Unfortunately, unfortunately, the church in Pergamon had adopted the same practices. They were worshiping the same gods along as Jesus. It was like this church where this pastor was in the front and he was asking his congregation to give money for a certain project. And as he was asking for money, the bar owner of the town stood up from the back and said, I'm willing to give $5,000. The pastor reluctantly said, well, I know where that money is coming from. Uh, I, I don't know if we can take it. And another brother stood up and said, Pastor, take it anyway. It is our money anyway. That was the church in Pergamon. They compromised. But he says there in, in the text that he who speaks has the two edged sword. There were two kinds of swords in, uh, in the Roman army. The first one was a and this sword was the shorter one. It was about a foot and a half or two feet long. And it was designed to have two edges. So they could cut on the way forward and the way backwards. But it was short because uh, on one-to-one -one combat, it was really easy to maneuver with. In fact, gladiators on the arena used that kind of sword because they could fight easily. And it was light so it could be moved quickly. What he's talking about there. There was another kind of sword. And this was the Ramphaya. The Ramphaya was a different kind of sword. The Ramphaya was a sword that was between three and four feet long. Think of the bat of a, of a, of a professional baseball player. This sword was long because it was used by those in, by those in authority, those who were li like generals who were in horses, and they could swing the sword and open a great deal of real estate on the battle because they could swing that sword. Not only represented power, but also represented authority. And this is the one that Jesus is talking about. He's saying, I have the authority. I have the weapon of somebody You can make decisions between life and death. And that is why Jesus is telling us in this letter that he understands your situation. You know, we live in a, in, in a culture that, that we are instructed to compromise. We are taught to compromise. In fact, if you don't compromise, you are not politically correct. Are you breathing this morning? Verse 13, uh, first part says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. You understand what Jesus is saying? Hold fast to what? To the culture? To the government? 
No, hold fast to my name. I know where you are. I know your situation. I know what you're going through. I know the decisions that you have to make every day. But the only thing that is going to keep you up, the only thing that is going to give you victory at the end is if you hold on to me. Now, Jesus says the throne of Satan. We don't know exactly why he's applying that, but most likely was, most likely was because they were sitting underneath the cloud of the smoke from the temple of Zeus. I lived in Mexico City for years of my childhood. And I remember there was a thing during the winter that, that it was called thermic inversion. And you, 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 know, you know physics, that when, when there's hot air, right, rises. But pollution is heavy. And when the air is cold in the mornings, in the winter mornings, the pollution goes down to ground level. In the summer, when it's warm, the pollution rises. But in the winter, we were advised that we, you could not run in the mornings. You could not do your exercise out on the street because of the immersion, the thermal inversion that was occurring on this, uh, uh, the atmosphere. So you could not breathe that air. I like to think that what Jesus is saying here is that he understood that there was not a thermical inversion, but there was a spiritual inversion. And Jesus is saying, I know that everything that has happened in that atmosphere in your city, the atmosphere of your city is, is toxic, it, it is demonic. I know that where you are, things are not healthy for you, but I understand where you are. Hold on to my name because I am the oxygen tank that you need. You know what's interesting about this is that Jesus is not telling them, leave that city, go to another. Jesus is not saying that. In fact, we hear Jesus saying in the Bible repeatedly, you are the salt of the... And you know, you cook. I don't, but you do. Have you ever had that, 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 that taste, that a spoonful of food with all the salt got stuck on? It's awful. It's horrible. But what happens when the soul is well mixed? It tastes good. Now, see, notice that Jesus didn't say, guys, become a, a, a chunk of salt. No. You are the salt of the earth. That means mingle, scatter, spread out. But see, we Christians have this, this escape mentality. You remember Y2K? Now, some of us a little bit older remember what, well, what it was like to live the, on the past millennium. And I remember at the end of the 90s, people, Christian people began to preach that at the turn of the century, at the turn of the millennium in 2000, the computers were going to create a chaos. That it was going to destruct, destroy everything that was computer-based. So there were some Faithful Christians who chose to buy property in Oregon. I have nothing against Oregon. Beautiful country. In South America, in Central America, in Mexico, and going to a different place. And they thought, and we always thought that as Christians, if we go away, we are more spiritual. And we have this escape, escape mentality, but that is never what Jesus thought. 
Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. In fact, if you look at your notes, Jesus said this in John 17, 14. This, is, this chapter 17 is called the intercessory pray, prayer of Jesus. This is a prayer that Jesus prays for his followers, for his disciples. Not the disciples who were there with him right there, but for all his disciples through history. Don't believe me? Let's take a look. Verse 14. Jesus is praying, I have given them your word. He's talking to the Father. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Verse 15. I do not pray. See, Jesus understands that we don't belong to the world. You see that? You, you see that? But then he prays. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. You, you see this prayer? Jesus is saying, yeah, they don't belong in the world, but they got to be there to be my disciples. The whole reason why I came, the whole reason why they are my disciples, so that, so that we can reach the world. And away from the world, you cannot reach the world. If you don't go to work, you don't make money, do you? Same thing. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said to the church in Pergamum, the only way that you can be successful and victorious in, in Pergamum where you are is if you hold on to what? To me, to my word. So you understand that Jesus is saying that his disciples across the ages, they should not be thinking about escaping. They should be thinking about being effective where they are, even in West Covina. Now, we, we have to understand that Jesus not only talked the talk, he walked the walk. See, Jesus was never found willingly with the religious people where? In fact, Jesus was known to be with the sinners. There was a commentary that I read this week. I was really debating if I would share this with you or not, but it makes the whole point. And this commentar uh, commentary says that making a a modern analogy that where the chips were on the tables and the drinks were poured, there Jesus was. But that does not mean that Jesus compromised his values. That's the other meaning of compromise. That does not mean that Jesus compromised who he was and his mission. In fact, by doing that, does not mean that he did the things that those, were, those people were doing. It just meant that Jesus really meant that he came to save them. Crazy thing. We are called to be fishermen of men. Have you read that before? But you know what we have become? Keepers of the aquarium. And the reason why I'm saying this is because statistically, statistically, it takes two years, only two years, for a new Christian in two years to stop having friends who are not Christian. So after two years, we have no relationships with people who are not Christians anymore. So we stay in the aquarium. 
we don't go fish anymore. And if I were to ask you, how many of you have friends who are not Christians? Some of you will raise your hand, but you're meaning your co-worker, the one you, you just say hi to in the morning. Because we really don't have relationships with non-Christians anymore. So there's been a while that as, 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 a, as a Christian church, we stopped being the salt of the earth. In fact, we are a, as Christians, and not, not, not just the Adventist church, any Christian church, we are known by the things that we're against. But not by the things that we are for. And this is the time that we have to be known by the things that we are for. Because Jesus showed us that he came to save the lost and he was here for the lost. Verse 13, second part, Revelation 2. And did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. See, renouncing their gods was a very, very important thing. It was a delicate matter. People lived in those days in the city of Pergamum with the idea that the moment that they would criticize their God, the moment that we would speak against their God, the moment that they would say something that would offend their God, their gods were listening and they were going to take revenge on them. So they tried to convince and force, and, and, and they were committed to make all Christians, because at the time they were all new believers, to deny Jesus. Because they believed that the cloud that they were living under was their God, that he was, was paying attention to what the Christians were doing. And because of them, they were going to be affected. So Christians were forced to deny Jesus. Now, there were two kinds of governors in those days. And, and one of those governors, one kind, was the governors that had the, the power of the sword. And the other kind of governors were the kind that did not have the power of the sword. I'll give an example. You remember when, when uh, Herod was king in Judea in the time of Jesus. He sent them... He sent Jesus to the Pharisees, to the Sanhedrin, to be judged. But they could not kill them. They had to take him to Pontius Pilate. Because they, even Herod, being the king, he did not have the authority from the Roman Empire to have the power of the sword. He could not condemn anybody to be killed. But Pilate, he had it. We understand because of the historical facts that the governor at the time that the letter of Pergamon came, their governor had the power of the sword. And there had been a man, a, a well-known Christian, Antipas, who had been condemned to be killed because he was a follower of Jesus. Now Jesus is saying, I have the sword. I have the power of the sword. We know that Jesus understands our situation, but we also need to understand that, that Jesus despises compromise. And the bad kind of compromise. The one that we sacrifice our values and our principles just to appear to be good with people. 
verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now, if this letter was written to us that, that some of you are eating and clean foods, some of, some of us will go like, oh my goodness. Especially the vegan ones. If we would hear that somebody here is practicing sexual immorality, we would be like, oh, never in history. At least that you know. Balak. Balak was a king. The king of Moab. And he had fear. Because the people of Israel were marching down and they, in, in Moab, there were only about 250,000 people. But the people of Israel were about 2.5 million. So he's looking at the cloud of dust that has been raised as they're marching towards Moab and he fears. So he understands that there is a prophet. And conveniently enough, it is a prophet for hire. So he calls on Balaam. We know Balaam for one thing. Because the donkey spoke to him. Remember that? And that's kind of hopeful because see, if God used a donkey, he can use me. Right? But, but we know Balaam because of the donkey. But in this case, it wasn't about the donkey. It was on the way that that happened. But the reason was because, because Balak, he called Balaam to come to Moab and prophesy against the people of Israel. Three times, Balak asked Balaam, Prophesy against Israel. And the three times, instead of being a, 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 a curse, it was a blessing. Now the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us in Numbers 24.10, but I have a few things against you because you have there, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Numbers 24.10, then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam and he struck his hands together. I don't know how that happened, if he clapped or he, I don't know. And Balak said to Balaam, I call you to curse my enemies and look. You have bountifully blessed them these three times. So the idea didn't work. An external curse did not work. So Balak concocts a different idea. And this idea was now that it was not going to be an external attack against Israel that was going to be effective. It was an internal attack. Verse 25. This is the plan of the inside job. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. I hope I don't have to translate that to you. But this is what happened. When we read chapter 25, the people of Israel, now they're in Moab. There was nothing that could be done against them. In fact, there was no fight because they could not beat them. So Moab just opened the doors. Come in. They opened the doors to the Israelites. And as they opened the doors of the city, they also opened the doors of their, home, of their homes. They opened the doors of their temples. They opened the doors of their bars. And their coffee houses. You were slow this morning. But 
as they were as they were in the place in their places, they began to worship with them and eat with them and, 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 and practice the same things that they were practicing. But the worst thing that now in moral relationships were taking place between the men of Israel and the women of Moab. Something that God had strictly directed, indicated not to do. You would think that there were only a few guys who did it. But you know how many people did it? 24,000. So the inside job worked. They compromised. Hey, they're so nice. They opened the door for us. We can't say no. We can't say no. Slowly today, we have learned to compromise a lot of what God has told us not to compromise. In fact, we have created new words for things. There is a good chunk of Christians who they don't use the word sin anymore. They use the word mistake. But let me explain the difference. Mistake is knocking a glass of water over the table with the elbow. Mistake is dialing the wrong number. Mistake is even running a red light. That's a mistake. Those are mistakes. A sin is making a decision to do something that God has said not to do. A sin is not doing something that God said to do. A sin re requires a choice, requires a decision. A mistake is accidental. So we cannot equate sin with mistakes. But we have compromised on such a level that we say that sin is a mistake. God does not need to forgive you from your mistakes. He needs to forgive you from your sins. And if you're praying for God to forgive you for your mistakes, I'm sorry, but that is not what you need to get to heaven. You need the forgiveness of your sins. So we are living in a culture that has taught us, has instructed us, even from childhood, as we watch cartoons nowadays, even in PBS, to compromise values. And I'm, let me tell you something. God asked us and he's begged us so that we can learn to love everyone, all people. Loving people does not mean accepting their sins. God loves us the way we are. There's nothing I can do so bad for God not to love me. Neither can I do anything so good that God will love me more. His love is consistent, is constant, and is permanent. But that does not mean that I, have to, that I can't continue on sinning. That does not mean that if I love someone, I need to support them in their sin. That is not love. In fact, God says in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, that the father who loves his children uses the rod. I love that text. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Why? Because what God is trying to teach us is that His love is designed to help us to transform our character. Are you with me? And character can only be accomplished when discipline is practiced. Let me explain this to you in this way. Back when I was in my early 30s, back when I was in my early 30s, one of my, my church members challenged me to join a boot camp, a fitness boot camp. And what this boot camp was about was getting up at 3.30 in the morning. So because at 4.30 in the morning, we had to be at La Crescena on the bottom of the hill at a park there. And there were five ex-Marines waiting for us to torture us for an hour every morning. The challenge was for six weeks. Every day, Monday to Friday at, at 4.30 in the morning. It was dark, it was cold, it was rainy. One time, I remember, I remember, I called the place because it was forecasted to rain and began to rain by my house. And, and I called the place and one of these ex-Marines answered. And I said, you know, rain is forecasted. Is there going to be boot camp tomorrow? And he hanged up on me. <laughs> like, you wimp. The first day, I think that after that day, I still have soreness from that day. The second day was bad. Because I was sore from the day before. And I was tired. The third day, I hated it. I was there and I almost forgot that I was Christian. The fourth day, I was tired, sleep deprived, hungry and sore. I was praying, God, I don't think this is your will. There's nothing that this, in fact, I was quoting all the texts that I knew. Paul says that extra, physical exercise does not provide any benefit. <laughs> totally out of context, but I was trying to justify my behavior and my feelings. Finally, I said, I, I'm going again. I didn't want to lose my 100 bucks. Not that it was a bet. It was just a. So I went the next day, the next week. It wasn't so bad anymore. In fact, we were doing more things, but it wasn't as bad anymore. I went the third week. Guess what? The fourth week? I was getting sad because I knew there were two weeks left. was something happening with me, something that I never experienced before at that level. And it was that now I had experienced a little bit, just a little bit. Are you breathing this morning? Jesus is saying, you know, there's some things that you need to change in your life. There's some things that you have to stop compromising. And you realize that I'm not talking about diet or exercise. There's some things that you need to start doing in your life and some things that you need to stop doing in your life. It's going to be painful at first. It's going to be horrible at first. You're going to be shaking from the lack of caffeine. But you will survive. And in the long run, you're going to be better off. 
Because Jesus says, I despise compromise. 1 Thessalonians 4.2 says, now let's go back to the issue with Pergamum. For you know what commandments he, we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And I like that Paul brings Jesus back into the equation in case they, they think that this was not given directly by the Lord. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. The vessel here is your body. In case you didn't know. And Jesus is saying here through Paul, you can do the right things. You can believe the right things. You can, you can say the right things. You can eat the right things. But there's one thing. That without, everything else goes down the drain. Your body needs to be pure. But let me tell you something. Maybe you didn't know this. But God invented intimacy. God invented intimacy. A while ago, I bought, I bought a, a furniture from Ikea. Have you ever bought furniture from Ikea? No? You're the wise one. But let me tell you, I bought furniture from Ikea, uh, and, and uh, we were putting it together. It wasn't the first time that I built furniture. I'd done it before. I had done it in the past. In fact, my grandfather was a carpenter. My, my great uncle was a carpenter. My, my, and I helped my great uncle build some stuff when I was a kid. My dad knew some stuff. And he would always tell me, you know, my dad taught me to do it this way. So I wasn't a, a newbie at, at building stuff. I did it before. I did it in a school in Mexico when I was there. Uh, I know my way around tools. So when I opened the boxes, I, I saw the picture, I said, I got it. Funny thing happened. I was done. But when I looked back at the box, there were some extra pieces in there. <laughs> and, and my first question was, You know, we, we can get so far on our own knowledge, on our own experience, without reading instructions. But the crazy thing about this is that life has taught us that when we do something outside of its purpose, we're going to abuse it. It's not going to be what it was intended to be for. Every time we don't follow the instructions. So God is saying, God, guys, girls, I invented intimacy. I want you to experience it. But the instructions say this. The best way to experience it is in a single monogamous, monogamous, you know what I mean, experience. Outside of that? 
It might work. It might be functional. But are you going to miss a whole lot of what this was invented for? And there's going to be pieces that are not going to be satisfying. In fact, you're going to be missing something, most likely in your heart. Because you're not doing it with everything that I designed it to be. So, so Paul is saying to the, to the church, guys, this is the way it's got to do. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Now, he's speaking to another church and he puts it in different words. Flee sexual immorality. Just don't practice it. Flee. Get away from it. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. Wait. Every sin that a man does is outside his body. So, so things that we do against God and, and, and us only, it's, it's outside. But he says, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And if the body is a temple where Jesus wants to reside, we are compromising his presence in us. We are allowing the cloud to be in us. Revelation 2.15. Let's go back to the letter to, to Pergamum. Also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about these guys. These guys like to control people. They like to infiltrate the, the, the church and convince people about certain things that were not what Jesus taught. In our culture, we've learned today, if you lived in this world for the last 20 years, that truth is not the same for everyone. That truth is subjective. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. The funny thing about this is this. If you look at it from the, from the philosophical perspective, it's an impossibility to have multiple truths. If you look at it from the scientific perspective, the scientific method of investigation has taught us that there's only one truth. Are you with me? So that means that that theory is not scientifically supported. The only explanation is that it is sociological. Well, that means that it is caused by men. So, we have to make a decision. Do I follow what men has taught me or do I follow what God is teaching me? The problem of the church in Pergamum was that they had splitted their focus from God culture. 
I'm not saying that culture is bad. In fact, I'm saying that when we understand this, we're more equipped, better equipped to be in culture. Are you with me? And what God is saying that our problem is that we focus not to offend other people when in reality our focus should be not in offending God. That is why Jesus says in his message to the church in Pergamum that he is willing to offer us a new identity. Verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Who is them? Those who are compromising. Those who have not committed. And we love that. We love that in our culture. We love the lack of commitment. We love when somebody comes and offers, try it without compromise. That is why we created prenups. Okay, two people are awake. Because we don't like commitment. We go into marriage with the idea that we're going to fail. But God is saying, verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Wait, why is he talking about the Exodus now? And then he says, and I will give him a, a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except he who receives it. You understand, you remember the stories of manna when the time of, of the people of Israel were going from Egypt to the promised land. They were crossing the desert. And you know there's one thing about the desert that we all agree on. There are no 7-Elevens. So they got hungry. They got thirsty. So can you imagine going 40 days, 40 years without Slurpees? So as they're going through the desert, they're hungry, they're thirsty. And God says to Moses, Moses, tell the people this. Every morning, how often? Every morning they can go out and every person has to gather enough food for one day for themselves. Right? Except one day. Except one day. The Sabbath. Because on the Sabbath, you remember that if they gather more than enough for one day, that would create worms, right? Maggots. But on the Sabbath, they gathered double on Friday. On the Sabbath, that food was still good. Funny thing. I cannot help you more then you want to be helped by yourself. Let me explain this to you. God is saying, guys, salvation, the experience with my word, what is going to keep you alive in the time that of difficulty is your experience with my word. Because my word is the truth. My word is when I get the power for you to protect yourself. This is the authority that I'm giving you to overcome sin. But you can only get it if you search for it every day day are you breathing this morning but on sabbath we come together on sabbath you're not by yourself on sabbath we can share it together then he says 
I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name. See, the Romans in that culture had a way of doing judgment. See, the, the Romans created most of what we use today in our, in our court system. And the Romans invented something called a trial. And, and, and trial by jury. So what they did was that when there was a, a, a person who was accused by certain crime that was punishable by death, the jury had in their possession two stones. One stone was black and the other stone was white. At the end of the trial, after all the evidence and arguments had been presented, the result of the destiny of that individual was indicated by the color of the stones that were gathered. So if, uh, if, 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 if a jury member decided that that person was in fact guilty, they would place in the urn a black stone. If they understood that this person was innocent, they would place in the urn a white stone. When these per people who were, who were on the trial received all of them, I mean all the white stones, that meant that they were innocent. So that individual will receive by the judge a stone. And on that stone will be written and inscribed the date and his name. So if he was walking down the street and somebody would say, hey, you, you, you committed a crime. Oh no. I'm innocent. And my name is written on this stone. I don't know if you see it, but Jesus is saying something interesting here. He's saying, if you commit to have a relationship with me every day, it does not matter what anybody else would say. You, you have a white stone and your name is written on it. Because I am the judge. I am the ultimate judge. I'm the one with the authority. I'm the one with the long sword. And I'm telling you that the moment that you hold on to me, even if you're living in the throne of Satan, you are a free person. Thursday, you heard the news. Terrible news out of Florida. Oh, I said that before, didn't I? No? Well, Jesus offers a new identity. You heard the news. This company builds bridges that are uh, prefabricated. They build them on the side of a highway. They transport them to the place where they're going to be permanent with the idea and the promise that these bridges will last for 100 years and they're uh, 10 times quicker to be built and they're cheaper. When this bridge on 8th Street in Miami was built in front of uh, one of the universities there in, in Dale County, as they were performing the stress test, every, uh, this is a test that every structure is uh, uh, tested for what is built before it's occupied, before it's in use. So they were testing the, the endurance of the bridge. They realized that the bridge collapsed. Except one little problem. Huge problem. When they performed the stress test, they decided not to close the street. 
and the bridge collapsed. Up to yesterday afternoon, they had recovered six bodies from under the bridge. And some of those were students of the university. I can't begin to understand the level of irresponsibility that companies and engineers had to compromise on to put some structure like that in a place where people are walking by and allow it to collapse in that horrendous manner. But that tells us, family, the reality of the world that we live in. A world that compromises. A world that does not care about the results as long as they get what they want. Because that is the bad side of compromising. And that is exactly what Jesus is warning the church in Pergamum today. And is the message that he's telling us this morning. We cannot compromise. Because at the end of the day when we compromise, nothing lasts. But Jesus has promised that he and him alone is the bridge that can take us to the other side. That him and him alone is the only one who can withstand time, pressure, persecution, and trials, even death. Because Jesus is the one that not just never compromised, but is willing to take us to the other side even when we have compromised in the past. That we can trust that Jesus is a permanent and eternal structure. That we can depend on. The church in Pergamum needed to understand that they could not trust in their culture. And as we look today, and every day, every week at the news, we know we, if we don't understand it yet, we're in trouble because we cannot trust in our culture. We cannot trust in, the, in, in, the, in sin in, in our time because it's taking humanity to the lowest of the lowest levels. And it's time that we focus on what really matters. It's time that we focus on the only thing that is permanent, on the only thing with authority, on the only thing that can withstand time and pressure. And Jesus is saying, if you remain in me, if you abide with me, if you keep connected to me, I understand your situation. I understand your pressure. Do not compromise because at the end, I'm going to come down from heaven and I'm going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, come so that we can be together for eternity. I'm the bridge that can tell you, that can take you to the other side. And as we think on this, on these words, let's listen to this song, Well Done.
We make choices every day. The choices that we make depend on the connections that we have. And it all depends who I am connected and who I want to please is how the decisions that I make will be. 
what Jesus is saying. Is that as long as we remain connected to him, our decisions are going to be good. Our decisions are going to be okay. But at the moment that we compromise, that we compromise our relationship with him, our life becomes compromised. Not just a life here, but a life in eternity. So I like to extend the invitation. The invitation that Jesus is, is told to the church in Pergamum. Remain connected to me. Because at the end, I'll have the power. And if you do that, if you do that, it'll be well done. Let's stand up and have a word of prayer. And so, Father, we, we've learned today that, yes, we are living in, in, in difficult times. That, yes, oftentimes we, we have to decide between pleasing men and pleasing you. And, Father, we are guilty of compromising. We are guilty of, of experiencing pleasure before our relationship with you, Lord. But, Father, we, we've learned today that at the end of the day, at the end of time, the only decision that matters is how connected we are to you. So, Father, I pray that each one of us here today will receive enough strength and courage to decide for you, to make the right choice, to be focused on giving you the honor and the glory. Because, Father, there is no other way. Unless what we search for is temporal gain. I pray for my brothers and my sisters and my friends who are here today. Perhaps this is the first time they hear this message. Perhaps this is the first time they hear that Jesus is the only way. And Father, I pray that in their heart, a desire, a constant desire to know you better is lit. And Father, that, that together, as we are this morning, we remain until the day you come to take us home in the clouds of heaven. We pray in the name of Jesus, in the name of the powerful one, in the name of the one that has the sword and has the victory already won, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen.